I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain even as I, that's Paul speaking, but if they do not have, have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. And I'm gonna to jump to verse 25. Now, about the virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, but I give judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Okay, Paul is saying, this is not a commandment, but as one who is trustworthy with his word, this is what the command, this is what I, I am telling you. And he says, because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, if you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So he's, he's saying, hey, prefer that you don't, but if you do, don't worry, it's not a sin. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I wanna spare you this. Verse 29, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those uh, who have wives shall live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they did not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world and its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs and how he could please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he could please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affair. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way and undivided devotion to the Lord. Jesus, I ask even right now that you would just captivate us. We give you our attention. Holy Spirit, speak through me. Come in this room. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. And so I, we, I can officially say Merry Christmas because it is after Thanksgiving and it is now the official Christmas season and people are buying the trees and putting up the lights and listening to the Christmas music. I know some of you started on November 1st and there's another camp of you who had to wait until after Thanksgiving. Uh, but, but I love Thanksgiving. Is anyone else here? Thanksgiving is your holiday? Okay, that hand went up fast. Yeah, like, so some of you, Thanksgiving, like, Thanksgiving is, is the day. I love it because uh, for a lot of people, it's also the first time, you know, in a year that you've come together to get around a bunch of family. And we all know family is crazy. If you agree, nod your head. You know, family, it's crazy, but in the best kind of crazy way, right? You know, you could already think about all your different family members, the, the funny uncle and the crazy aunt and, you know, the cousin who's always late to everything and the person who, you know, shows up after you already ate and, you know, and, you know, just there's, every family has different things and then you could expect the conversations of Thanksgiving, right? Like there's always the different conversations gonna have, you know, sometimes people say, hey, we don't talk about politics during this time, so we don't wanna have arguments during Thanksgiving, uh, but there's always different types of conversations and then I could always count on this golden question, which some of you might have heard during Thanksgiving or the holidays. It's the question that I am waiting for every single year. Now it's posed differently by who is asking it. If it's my mom asking it or if it's my sister asking it or if it's my aunt asking it. But usually when it's my mom asking it, it goes a lot like this. When am I gonna get grandbabies? <laughs> That's what my mom says. <laughs> 
Now, when it's my sister asking, it's a lot like this. So, you found a guy yet? Like, you got anyone? If not, I, listen, I, I know a guy. I could set you up. I have someone. And, and she's ready. She's trying to hook me up with other friends that she knows through friends. And she's been searching. And then when it's the aunt, you know, it's something like this. Like, oh, you're just you're just so pretty to still be single. <laughs> and it's like, oh, thank you. And while these questions come with the best intentions, I'm sure, it has made a lot of people who are in this singleness state of their life or in this status, it's made a lot of them feel less than, like they are not complete, like they are lacking in something, right? But according to Paul, he's saying singleness is good. Sometimes I'm like, I need Paul at my Thanksgiving dinners, right? I need Paul to be sitting in there and being like, you know what? Actually, it's good for Brooke to be single. If it's, I, I would actually say that it is good for her to remain the way she is. Paul uses certain statements even. Like here, here's the reason why it's good. It's not just good, it's preferred. He says, I'm trying to spare you. I want to keep you free from concern, and my tension is I have yet to meet someone who is single and they tell me they are single because of this reason. I have yet to meet someone who is single and they're like, it's good to be single. What do you mean? I get to be, I get to be spared from other concerns. Like this is, I have chosen this because if we're honest, most people haven't chosen singleness. Singleness has chosen them. <laughs> And that is not the reason. So for most people, for some people, the choice behind singleness might be like, well, I'm, I'm waiting because I want to be equally yoked. I have to find someone who, who also loves Jesus. And I want us to, to really have that, that same faith together. And it's the choice they makes. For others, they have chosen singleness because they're going to choose Jesus's sexuality over their own. They're going to choose what Jesus has had to say. And they're going to choose Jesus over their own sexuality. But rarely do I hear people celebrate singleness as a gift. Rarely do I say, because the question is, aren't gifts something you usually like? I did promise some people today, I promise I'm not going to get up here and tell you singleness is a gift. Because if you're in here and you've been single and, you have, and you're in this boat where, where you want to not be single, where you are a, a, a single woman or a single guy and you're like, listen, I, I, I'm single, but I don't necessarily want this for me. Sometimes it's hard to hear someone say things like it's a gift because if we're honest, it doesn't usually feel like a gift. Now, I'm happy that as a single woman who does one day hope to get married, I am happy that I was even asked to be able to preach this message today because I also know what it's like to sit in a seat and to hear someone talk about this message, talk about even this topic, and you think to yourself, if you're honest, well, easy for you to say, you are married. And so, and so, and so I have the, the privilege to be able to come up here and share even some of my hurt some of my feelings, and I can look at some of you and say, I truly do understand. I get it. So what do you do and how do you handle tensions that Paul brings up? This tension of singleness is a good thing, but in our culture, it feels like you're a second-class citizen if you are single. What do you do with this, this tension when you have delighted in the Lord, but you haven't received the desired spouse? I want to be careful not to call singleness a season because I want to be honest with what if it is not a season? 
What if it is what you are going to be? What if there is not just looking for, oh, well, well, this is just a season and I'm gonna get out because the reality is, is the truth is I know very many godly men and women who have chosen to be single because they weren't ever able to find someone and maybe one day they will, but we have to get past this mindset. What do you do when you, when you feel incomplete? Now, if you're in here and you're not single, so this isn't a time to get up and be like, peace out. <laughs> because this message is actually for everyone. Because Paul seems to bring up not just people who are single, but he brings up people who are married, engaged, divorced. There's, there, this is for actually all relationships, for those who, who have a lot, for those who mourn, for those who are high. He is actually bringing up all sides of relationships here. And it's actually a message for all, it's not just for the single. So how are we to live when we are married, engaged, mourning, happy, rich? Because Paul's kind of hitting on all of these different things. What do we do with Paul saying things? He says, tell the married to live as if they were not. Spoiler alert, that does not mean that you abandon your marriage and you go commit adultery. And hopefully nobody liked that spoiler alert. That is not what Paul is saying here at all. So we have to get, what, what is this all about? Paul's main focus that he's getting to is how can we live a life that is free from anxieties? Because here's what they had, and here's what we still have today, is that the anxieties of this world seem to be pulling away our attention. The anxieties, the things of this world are pulling away our attention, and Paul's cry to this church is, do not be controlled by the world's grip. Do not be controlled by the power and the values in this world. And we're spending a lot of our efforts searching for treasures in all the wrong places. Our bigger problem isn't singleness, it's the value that we've put in relationships. It's the throne that we've set them on. But our problem is not just for those who are single, because we all have created thrones. It's the thrones that, that whether you are married and you've created some throne or engaged and the cycle keeps going on because it's not just our marital status, but it's the, the job that you have put on the throne of your heart or your money status that is on the throne of your heart or, or the school if you're gonna get into it. And the bigger picture is how do we dethrone what the world has made ultimate? How do we dethrone what culture has seemed to elevate? If you were here last week, I feel it's as if Paul is almost continuing this dethroning process that is happening. Because there, there is more, there's more that is happening and he's hitting on everything. Pastor Andrew is talking about how we need to dethrone sex because Jesus' sex ethic, it is going to be narrow. The world is gonna be broad, but the narrow road always leads to life. It always leads to life. And Paul is saying, live in such a way where you're not gonna be dominated by the culture's values, rather you're gonna be devoted to the kingdom ones. He says, I would like you to be free from concern in verse 32. Here's what I wanna talk about today. When you're dominated by culture's values, you will always live in anxiety. But when you're devoted to kingdom values, you will always live in abundance. You'll always live in, a, and I'm not here to preach some prosperity gospel of abundance. I'm talking about what Jesus said in John 10, where he says, hey, the enemy is gonna come and he's gonna try to steal, he's gonna try to kill, he's gonna try to destroy, but I've come that he can have life and life abundantly. 
I'm talking about the abundant life that Jesus has because my concern is so many of us in here are living life and you're missing out on the abundance. You're missing out on the abundance. What I mean is whether you are single, celibate, married, widowed, divorced, you could still have life and life abundantly. So how do we do this? The first thing is we need to rethink your relationship with the world. It's time to rethink your relationship with the world. We must have a radically new understanding of our relationship with the world. We, we, when, you, when you come to know Jesus, when you get in a relationship with Jesus, it changes every other relationship. And he's saying, hey, we need to rethink our relationship with the world. This, uh, this break that just came up, me and my friend, we, had to, we switched cars. She's like, hey, can I use your car? Because it was bigger. And I'm like, yeah, sure. So we switched cars. And so I had to get in her car now. And it serves the, the same purpose. It still drives. But there's all these new features. Like, I'm like, oh, man, this car is like, it's one of those safety cars, if you know what I mean. Like, it'll jerk you over if you kind of get in the wrong lane. And I'm trying to figure out the feature of how to get connected to the Bluetooth. I'm trying to figure out the features of, of, of how her uh, cruise control works. Because if I could figure out these features, then it's only going to help my driving experience be better. <laughs> Now, there's so many of us here where we have, we have given our life to Jesus, and there's this newness that comes with this. There's this new identity. If you just read through Ephesians 1, you're going to see all of these different things. Paul opens up the letter where we are, we are called saints. We have this new identity, but we haven't yet figured out how to use that. We haven't tapped into the new. There's, there's, this, there's this new understanding of even ourselves and our, and our DNA, and we have to, to learn how to do this. And he starts, what I want to highlight is in verse 29, he says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, as, is that the time is short. Paul is talking, and he has in mind that Christ is going to come back one day, and he knows Christ is coming back, and he has the second coming of Jesus in mind, but he is not thinking, drop everything you're doing right now, don't worry, you know, quit your jobs, and just go preach the gospel 24-7 because Jesus is coming back tomorrow, which some people would argue that Paul was almost too urgent, but that is not even what he's talking about when he's saying the time is short. He's not talking about this chronos, chronological time. He's talking about this kairos time. He's talking about this opportunity time. He said, hey, the opportunities are short. He's talking about this fitting time. In this opportunity that you have, in this, this fitting time, how will you live? He's not saying to cease living. He's saying it's time to live different. How are you living your life? Now, Paul is writing to this church, to, to people. A lot of times people would come to, uh, to the, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, they would come to, to this place because what they wanted to do is they wanted to make their, their wealth and they're moving up this social ladder. And, and Paul's aim is he's, hey, I need to come and, and I need to bring this church to maturity and their thinking and their practices. And, and you, see, you see Paul pouring his heart out on this part. It's a very pastoral part of Paul because these aren't just people, some random letter he, he's writing. These are people that, that he has been with, people that he probably has even led to know Jesus, people that he had discipled, people that he had raised up to be leaders. Like, church, like Paul's having, he has this cry in his heart and this, this kind of like pastoral ways in which he's saying, hey, listen, I'm trying to help you because in my absence, I've seen that you started to, to drift back into the old ways. And we have to have a new understanding of how we are to live. Don't drift back into the culture. 
And he's hitting on it. Hey, when we get in relationship with Jesus, all your other relationships are going to change. Replace the old attitudes with new ones. Don't let the world have a grip on you. He says things like, buy yet as if you have none. That was hard to read during Black Friday. <laughs> oh, okay. Good, good timing, you know, Lord. Recognize where the world has a grip on you. The time is short. The opportunity is short. And don't let the world take you captive. I'll put it another way. What he is saying is make use of what the world offers, but don't make it ultimate. Make use of what you have. Make use of it, but don't make it ultimate. And the problem with singleness that I have seen is marriage has become the ultimate. This is, wait, once you get here, like, you know, when your life progresses, now, now you've made it. Marriage is, is the ultimate. And we can't accept the world's values when it gets in the way of God's kingdom. Right? I mean, just being completely vulnerable, I, I, I'm not like 100% sure, and we've learned that my prophetic gifts are, are not great, but I'm in like the 90s percent sure that if I were not following Jesus, I would be married. <laughs> because there's a sacrifice that comes because I know, I, it's not like, oh, well, Brooke, your list is too picky. No, here's my list. I need me and my husband to make much of Jesus. Until I find that relationship, until it's, hey, together, we're gonna be able to make much of Jesus. I don't need him to complete me, <laughs> but we do, I do need him to compliment me in such a way where we are going to, to make the most of God's kingdom together. And this is a hard thing to do because that is not what the world will tell you to do. It's not what, what the values of culture is telling you to do. Make use of what the world offers, but do not make it ultimate. Here, I'll put it even another way as an example. I think a lot of us, we create a list in our mind, especially if you know Jesus. And so if you know Jesus, can someone tell me what the first thing on your list usually is? God, great, A plus, God. So a lot of times, you can't ever go wrong if you say God is the answer, right? A lot of times God is the, the top of our list, right? And we have this right, and then a lot of times the next thing might just be family. And so we could even say in the family part, this would be if this is your marriage, you know, kids, if this is just you and you're, you're single, so this is family, and then, you know, you have your actual, like, family, and then you have friends. We'll say friends are next on our list. And then we'll say even our job, or school. Most people would look at this list, most Christians would look at this list and say, that seems pretty right. That seems like a, a good order to me. And the problem we have with this list is although, yes, God is at the top of the list, God didn't want to be the top of the list. God wanted to be the list. Where God says, I don't want to just be here, but I actually want to be centered here. I want to be here I wanna be here where God becomes the ultimate thing on every part of this list. And I think some of us have compartmentalized our relationship where it's like, well, I read my verse in the morning, which is great because Matthew 6 does say, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all things will be added unto you. But the question is, has God dominated? Has God taken control over everything with your family? Is he first with your family? Is God first in your friendships? Is God first in your job? Is God first in the areas? Or is God just something you go to where you read your first of the day hoping that the devil will stay away and we have to be honest with this of how are we actually inviting him to take over all parts of this or have we created it in such a way where it's like where we, we think we're checking him off 
of a to-do list of things that we're to do. We have to rethink our relationship with the world. And Paul, he goes on this, this rant where he talks about things. Those who have wives should not live or should live as if they do not. No, this doesn't mean you become monks and you abandon your, your relationship and you leave and you peace out. We already said that. You're not supposed to ignore your spousage. Marriage itself, you know, it's not going to exist in the, the new heaven and earth. And as important and wonderful as it is, what he is saying is don't make marriage the ultimate. Love your husband, love your wife, but be sure that you love God above all. Don't let your wife become or your husband become your first priority. Don't let your marriage become your ultimate allegiance. We have to rearrange, we have to rethink our relationship with the world. Those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, were not. We sorrow, but when you know Jesus, you don't just sorrow as someone who doesn't have hope. You, even the way you sorrow is differently. The way you are happy, your emotions are differently. Do not be controlled by your emotions. Do not let your emotions, what he's saying in here is emotions, great indicators but don't let them become idols in your life. Don't be ruled by them. Don't be governed by your emotions. Those who have something as if it were not theirs to keep. What he's saying is don't get caught up in your possessions. Some of our problem is we let our possessions possess you. Like this thing, this, this little tiny box has, come, has, has somehow taken control over us. And he's saying, hey, you have to think different. It's like when, when I'm looking to purchase a car, I have to think about it differently. Wait, this isn't my car to purchase, but how can I use this? What Kairos moment do I have? What opportunity do I have with this car? If, if I get this, when, when, when you're buying a house, what, what can you do with this house? What is the opportunity? What is the, the time is short. So if I, if I have this time now where I'm gonna buy this house, I, I want a house that's filled with peace. I want to do things in the Bible says where it says, hey, practice hospitality. Okay, this house would be a great house where we could practice hospitality. There's things in the Bible that says throw parties for people who can never throw a party for themselves or who would never have someone throw a party for them. That's what, that's the, I want to take advantage of those moments, of that time, the time is short. What opportunities are at hand when you start to rethink your relationship with the world? And it's not just about what you could get, but what you could also give to others. So when you're dominated by the culture's values, you're always gonna live in anxiety, but when you're devoted to kingdom values, you live in this abundance. Don't let yourself be overwhelmed by the stuff you have in your life. Don't let the use of your stuff become the focus of your life because our culture does, it, it pushes the abundance of, of possessions, right? The abundance of relationships, of, of how many followers you could have. That is a, if you, if you could get to this amount of followers, then, then culture now you know, gives you thumbs up or this, this pursuit that we have to finding the perfect soulmate or to be happier, to be more successful or to be more fit. And what he says in verse 31 is live like those who use the things of the world, not engrossed in them. For the world in its present form is passing away. But this word engrossed, and not to be captive to them, not to be immersed, consumed, dominated. And we live in a culture where we are engrossed with different, engrossed with our image, right? You see people who are, who are constantly, you know, they, they go to the gym or they go to their own house and take a thousand pictures so that you can find the right one to post on that story or the right, the right one to show the, the perfect family that you might have. And we become consumed, dominated, controlled, and engrossed by these things. And Paul says, I want to free you from concern. 
It seems to be the more we have, the more we seem to be burdened. And it wasn't just Paul that thought these things, but I think that he even got some of this from things that Jesus would say, like in Luke 21, where he talks about, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly. Now he's talking about when he will return, for it'll come on those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, that you'll be able to stand before the Son of Man. Even Jesus, he had a sense of urgency. And church, I'm wondering, where's our urgency? For the Kairos moments, the, the, the time that we have, the cares of this world, the problem that's gonna cause us to be unprepared for his return. And the danger is it chokes out our faithfulness towards him. He knows when you get consumed in this, like, when you actually get controlled by that, you're no longer faithful to him. It chokes out your faithfulness towards him. I've seen this, especially as a youth pastor, when, when people are consumed in sports and all of a sudden they don't show up anymore. Now, not just on a Wednesday, on a Sunday, and then they're not in community anymore. Or then parents are, are entangled and they're, they're, and they're engrossed in all the sports and the life, the schedule, and their schedule is dictating their schedule. And now they can't even go to church. And, and all of a sudden it has dominated them because of how much we've elevated even things like sports. So we see this with jobs, where we're consumed with the jobs and stuck and the jobs and constantly putting all of our time in there. Or, or, and it, it chokes out your faithfulness toward God or you're stuck on this fear of money. Will, will I ever have enough? And, and getting stuck on trying to get more and more and more and ruled by it. Or you see people who, who both used to love Jesus a ton and then they actually come together and they get married and the people used to always be in church and serving and devoted to the Lord. Now they are no longer doing that when our marriage was supposed to point to Jesus and represent Jesus and now they don't serve anymore and, they, and they're, they're in this place where, where they're, they're not even coming to church anymore or I see this a lot, especially at my age with a bunch of friends who are single and it's like, you know what? I mean... He says he kind of loves Jesus. So that's like, and, and then they just fall away from things because they got so engrossed with this one thing. The time is short. Kairos is short. Rethink your relationship with the world. Listen, God, he knows timing and we could trust him. I need you to hear this if you're single. Singleness is not a trial to persevere. It's a time to prosper. It's an opportunity that you have to prosper. And Paul, he's not concerned with the amount of time, but he's concerned with the use of time. And the question is, how will you use it? Do not let your singleness be a hindrance. I remember even thinking like, oh yeah, when I get married, I'll buy a house. Why? <laughs> no, I just went ahead and bought a house. <laughs> because culture will tell you, oh, you have to wait. Trust me, I get what culture puts on you. I'm a woman single pastor. <laughs> there are a ton of barriers to it. But I'm not dominated by culture. I'm going to be devoted to what the kingdom of God has told me to do. And all I could do is be faithful to that. All we could do is, is we do not let those things be hindrance. Live in this world. Don't be influenced by it. Christians live in the world, but none of the things in the world should dominate your life. And we've idolized status. We've idolized marital status. We've idolized job status. We've idolized uh, money status. We have, we have idolized status. And it's time to discover where has culture gripped our hearts because we need to dethrone the things that are passing away. Rethink your relationship with the world, but then refocus your relationship with the Lord. 
He says, rethink, you have to rethink your relationship with the world, but then you have to refocus your relationship with the Lord. In verse 35, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way and undivided devotion to the Lord. I don't know if any of you guys have ever stared at something for so long that you can't see it anymore. I don't know if anyone knows what I mean. You're looking, maybe you're working on a computer screen, reading a book, and it's like, oh, it all goes blurry, and you have to kind of like blink a few times, and you have to refocus. To refocus is to make center again. Jesus wants to be center again of your family. Jesus wants to be center again of your marriage. Jesus wants to be center again of your kids. Jesus wants to be center again of your friends, of your job. Make him the center of it. It's time to refocus your relationship with the Lord. Paul's solution to anxiety is this undivided devotion to the Lord. Do you have a divided interest? Where is your focus? So does this mean that married people can't be devoted to the Lord? You see, Paul says, like, wait, so if I get married, like, I can't be devoted to the Lord, and that, it does not mean that, just so that we're clear. So how do we balance this? I like what Francis Chan argues. He says that married couples are often too focused on marriage itself, and that most people's definition of a good marriage is a marriage that makes both people happy. There should be some distinction in light of the second coming of Jesus between your marriage and the marriages of those who do not believe in Jesus. What he's saying is if you are married and you love Jesus, your marriage should look different than those who are married and don't love Jesus. He argues in essence, if Christians are called individually by Jesus to do good works, then married Christians are also called by Jesus to do those same good works. AKA married Christians are still called to be devoted. <laughs> this isn't a peace out to hope, I guess I'm not. They are still called to be devoted. You are still called to make disciples. You are still called to serve. You are still called to love the poor. You are still called to share the gospel and you are still called to lead a healthy marriage but to do it with the urgency of knowing one day he's coming back, to do it with Kairos in mind. What opportunity do we have in this marriage? You are still called, but what Paul is saying is, it's gonna be more difficult. It will be more difficult. However, I think a way to make it less difficult is our focus. Now, it's this, he, he's saying undivided devotion, insinuating there's a divide, and I think that divide is our distraction, and it's ironic because Paul said being single would help us have more attention. But when our lives are dominated by culture, what I'm seeing is people who are single actually have less attention towards the Lord because their focus shifts. Wait, wait, I have to make sure I look nice. Like, and becoming obsessed with, with image and becoming obsessed with, with how you're gonna look. And, and I have seen this happen uh, in microchurches even. Like, well, I wasn't this great. At, <laughs> I wasn't this great microchurch where I was thriving and, and I was getting closer to God. But you know what? It was like all the same sex. And so I need to go into a, a microchurch where it's co-ed because I need to meet my husband. And I didn't really like, I didn't really like this microchurch, but you know, there are at least options there. And, and so uh, 100%, I want you to get in a microchurch, but I hope that we are more obsessed with the microchurch that's gonna bring us closer to Jesus and not the microchurch where we are just looking to find a spouse because we are dominated by the thoughts of like, where will we be? because then you're missing out. We don't have that attention anymore. I've seen 
plenty of singles literally stuck on dating app to dating app to dating app and nothing against it because I've also seen successful, I've seen successful marriages come out of that. But what I'm saying is when you're obsessed over did someone like this picture, did someone DM me, did someone reach out to me, did someone swipe on my photo, that becomes an obsession where it starts to dominate your thoughts and you think about that all the time and that is not what Paul had in mind when he said singleness is good. I like this verse by Andrew Wilson. It says, if we struggle to recommend the single life and to affirm it as good, right, and beautiful, then it might be worth reflecting on why and on what Paul knows that we don't. What does Paul know that, that we don't? Because he says it is good for them to remain as they are. This word good, it's kalos. It is good right, beautiful. Apparently, Paul, his life of being single was so good that he thought people should imitate it. Paul's life, his singleness was so good that he's like, no, 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 don't, like, don't do that. He was, he was in, he knew something that we did not know, and it was so good that he thought people should take this as a blessing to imitate instead of a curse to escape. And so many times you'll hear even singles be like, well, this just feels like a curse. It's not. It's not some, some curse that you have, right? Paul knows something we don't know. When I read this, I was like, yeah, Paul, he knew a secret. Does anyone know what Paul's secret was? It says he learned in Philippians the secret to being content. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty, and I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry or living in plenty or want. I could do all things through him who gives me strength, which is the verse that I'm sure a lot of us know. And content. You know, I used to hate it when a single person would, would even bring this up, this contentment. Right, you'd always find like the the girl was like, oh, well, you know, like, I wasn't even looking for a relationship. Like, I finally was so content in Jesus. And then literally the next day, my husband showed up. And I'm like, all right, please, God, help me. You know, like, it's like, it's like, is that like the equation here? It seems as if, especially in Christian circles, the equation is be content and you will get spouse. I would hear people say things all the time, like it wasn't, it just wasn't until I finally was like, nope, I'm, I'm content that, that he just was right there. And I remember telling people, the cynic in me, I don't think that's true. I don't think people have ever been content. I think people are saying they're content and they're not actually content. I don't believe this contentment thing. I remember standing in that lobby and having a conversation with someone and saying, I'm gonna be honest. And this is me being vulnerable to you, church. It was me saying, you know what? I just don't think I will ever be content. And that was the beginning to refocusing my relationship with the Lord because that was when I decided, you know what, God? I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm gonna be, and some of you, you need to get honest with God where you could tell him things like, you know what, I, because what I was essentially saying is, God, I just don't think you could ever satisfy me. And a lot of us, we play this fake it until you make it, and if you fake it, you're not gonna make it. You're gonna fall. Because Jesus is real. 
And he wants the real part of you and he wants your real emotions and he wants your real truth and he wants your real hurts and he wants a real relationship with you where you could go to him and you could say things like, God, I don't know that I will ever be content. He could handle it, church. So when's the last time you got real with God where you focused your attention on him and you didn't just try to fake something that wasn't actually real and say, well, I, I'm just content. See, Paul, he, he learned this. He learned this, this secret. And I'll say one thing. The, the enemy, he hates two things. He hates a godly marriage and he hates a content single person. See, when we're content, what happens is we op- when, when we're not content, you open yourself up to compromise. When you decide, hey, I'm not gonna be content, I'm gonna, you, you, you end up opening yourself up to, to compromising things, which is why I'm grateful to say, God did come through with my prayer, and I can faithfully say, hey, there was a moment where I, I realized I was, I was actually content because I remember being in relationships and being like, I actually don't need this to complete me. This is not where I, where I need to be, and I'm actually content in Jesus. Because when you have contentment, it gives you clarity. And I wonder how many people have stepped into relationships without contentment and they've stayed in them because they had no clarity. Because their focus was on their lack of emptiness, their lack of feeling satisfied, and they use another person to help satisfy them. And then at the end of the day, it ends up hurting them. Culture has tricked us into thinking we're missing out on something. Culture has tricked us into thinking we don't have enough. If you know me, you know I'm a prankster. I love tricking people. So I love, tr- I love you know, doing stupid things like hiding my roommate's keys and watching her look for them and being like, ha you don't know where they are. And then, and then being the one who gets to tell her, yeah, just kidding, I had them the whole time. You know, like, I know it's evil, but uh, it, it's, it's, there's like these things that I'm like, oh, this is, like, this is I, I love doing anything to just prank someone in some way. And I feel like there's an enemy looking down at us sometimes and being like, ha you think you don't have enough? <laughs> you have plenty. <laughs> but you think that you are without, you think that you don't have abundance, you think your God cannot provide everything that you need. And some of us are scattering around like this. And contentment is only as available as our attention lends it. Because what I realize is when we are missing something, we become fixated on it. Like my roommate searching for her keys, when we realize we are missing something, we become so fixated on it. How am I gonna fix it? How am I gonna get it? What am I gonna do? And it steals away our attention. It steals, listen, we, this matters because we are so focused on what we do not have that we miss what we have. We, come, we become hyper aware of like, well, I don't have this perfect house. I don't have this car yet. I don't have this spouse yet. I don't have the, the kids that I want yet. And we get so focused on this. And discontentment always causes you to focus on absence. But when you're content, you focus on abundance. And we have to have a shift of focus. We have to refocus where we put him at the center of everything. And this matters because we have been given life and life abundantly and we have enough. And I think discontentment has a way of starting with our eyes. Where Jesus will say things like, your eyes are the lamp of your body. If your eyes are good, your whole body is gonna be good. And there's this way in which where we, the eyes are these gateways where we, where we let things in, Right? And, and we get into this place where we were discontent because of comparison or whatever it may be. I'm on this, I'm on this hyd- hydration phase of my life <laughs> where I'm dedicated to being a hydrated girly. <laughs> what I mean is I really stink at drinking water. 
And so I finally got a water bottle where I have my goal of if I could drink three of these a day, like I am doing, I'm doing good. Like I'm making it. And I wish that, here's the hard part with hydration. I drink my three water bottles and I feel so accomplished, but then I have to do it again tomorrow. It's like, man, like why couldn't you just make us to always be like hydrated? But I have to like keep on drinking water. Like I, I feel like it's like a, like it's a, it's a, I'm never gonna reach my goal is how I feel. Like it's never gonna be a place of where I reach perfect hydration. And this is how we treat contentment sometimes. Because contentment is not a place you reach, it's a place you rely. We weren't ever actually made to reach contentment because we were actually made to rely on the one who makes us content. Where we can lean on him where his mercies are new every day, where we could look to him every day, where we could seek him first every day, where he becomes our devotion. We, we cannot treat God like something like, well, I had my fill of you and, I, and I'm good to go. Once, once I got my, and this is the problem we have and why I think people get conflicted and frustrated is because they know at one point they were content, but then maybe in the next day they're not. And that's true, that could happen. And the question is, where is your focus? Because contentment has a way in which, you, you know, holidays, for instance, will change your contentment. Yeah, you know that. Someone felt that. For a holidays change your contentment. Why? Because your focus changes. December 25th is the, the day that the least amount of porn is viewed worldwide. December 26th is the highest. There's a direct correlation with you walk in and, and, and you, I think people feel this like, oh, like I, it feels this, this, this void. You're, you're not distracted. You're, you're focused on that thing, but then it makes you hyper aware of what you do not have. This is why we do have to be careful, church, of how we talk to people. How do you talk to the single person and your family or someone who's gone through a divorce or, or someone with their job? Like It, it matters. In contentment, it'll follow our conformity. In Romans, it talks about, he says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And then he says, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I remember when I went to Kenya, I was there for three months one time, and all of a sudden, I, I, I was conforming to their culture. I wanted to buy their shoes, even though they were less comfortable than the shoes I have. I'm like, no, like that's what everyone's wearing and I was conforming. I didn't care about the things that were happening here because my heart moved there and, and I was conforming to, to the patterns, to the culture of their world because of the environment that I was immersed in at that time. If I conform to the world, then the problem is I'm going to desire the things of the world. This is why we are not to conform, and my satisfaction levels are going to be based on the environment that I have adapted to, that I have conformed to. So our contentment has a way of following our conformity. So scripture says, don't conform, but rather be transformed. How? By your mind, by your focus, what you're looking. And the verse before that, it's verse one, in view of God's mercy. In view of his mercy, when's the last time you even preached the gospel to yourself to where you were viewing his mercy, looking at his cross, looking at his grace, in view of God's mercy? First, it's a a focus. Hey, look to him first and watch your mind start to transform. And if we have to be transformed, then it means it's only natural to be conformed to the world. 
See, transforming means there has to be a change and a change that doesn't come from necessarily leaving an environment, but I would say a change from thinking differently. Where have you focused your thoughts? I'll tell you what kills contentment more than anything else, social media. We get to look at you know, all, of, all of your friends or maybe someone who just got engaged or just had a baby or has this family, they're in Hawaii. I've never gotten off of Instagram and said, whew, I feel content. Never. Instead, I'm like, when am I planning my next trip to go somewhere? Because I'm a loser. Like, I need to plan a vacation now. I mean, like, we don't get off of social media feeling content, and yet we fix our eyes on that. We focus on that. So what's the difference between having a desire and being unsatisfied? I think everything starts with a desire, but I think we become unsatisfied when we fulfill that desire with the wrong things, right? Like it starts with a desire. I have desire to eat junk food. I don't know if anyone else has that desire, but I have a desire to eat junk food. I I love to eat, you know, all the sweets and all that. And so, but the problem is, is I have to think about what's actually going to satisfy me. I did not think about that on Thursday though. It's because like there are some things you could eat that actually will fulfill your craving that's gonna be better for you or you could choose the cinnamon roll, which in the end is not gonna satisfy you because your stomach is gonna be upset and your cholesterol is gonna skyrocket and you're gonna have all these health issues in the end, right? There are things in which, like, there are desires, but the question is, how do you fulfill your desires, right? It's a problem when we let our desires dictate our delight levels. Psalm 37, when it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And I think so many times we've, we've tried to almost manipulate this verse of like, oh God, okay, okay, fine, I'll delight in you. Just give me what I want. Give me the desire. Because when you truly delight in him, church, you recognize your desires just shift. There's something that changes within you. In Hebrews 13, five, it says, you know, be content with what you have because God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We could be content here because we already know that we have everything we need. The question is, do you believe this? And if you don't get honest with God, get honest with him. Paul is not calling us to detach from the world and everything in it, but he's calling us to first attach to Jesus. It's not this detachment from the world, it's this devotion to God because there's a way in which when you are attached to Jesus, when you even try to go towards things you cannot, he is gonna pull you back in because there's this attachment that you have to him. And the question is, are you attached to him? Or have you allowed your heart, the center of your heart, have you put things in your heart that have taken over? Our attention is always going to reveal our affections. It's just the truth. It's like last night when I was watching the Gators play, there were you know, people at our house and there were different conversations going on. My attention was on the screen <laughs> because, I, because the Gators, they, they have my attention. And because they have my attention, they have my affection, which means I buy Gator merch, <laughs> which means I have hoodies in my closet and, and I will pay money to go to their games because they have, they have gotten my attention. They have my affection. Right, but it doesn't just stop there with our affection because no, no one will, will actually steal your affection without first getting your attention. And I feel like God is begging for some of y'all's attention this morning. And it affects 
our affections, then it also affects our actions. According to research, I have eight seconds to get your attention. It used to be 12 seconds, but it's actually decreased to eight seconds. So now I only have eight seconds if I wanna get your attention. And I don't think that the problem is because we cannot focus. We need to refocus. And, I, and the problem is that we can't focus because Netflix binges have showed us we know how to focus. My screen time has showed me I know how to focus. It's not that we have a focus problem, it's that we are fighting with a distraction problem. Everything is fighting for our attention and distraction is robbing us because whatever steals our affection for God becomes an idol. You might hear this word idol in churches. So I wanna be very clear on what idols are. It's whatever is going to steal your affection from God. What makes something an idol is when we look away from our faith in God and look to something or someone else for something that we don't think God could give us. What do you not think God could give you that you have put on the throne of your heart that has become an idol, whether that is the, the school or the sports, the friendships, relationship status, because the emptiness of idols turns humans into emptiness. And this is our real problem with loneliness. The lie that you believe, I am not enough. The lie that you believe, I am never gonna be chosen. My roommates pulled me into watching The Golden Bachelor. <laughs> I've, I obviously know the premise of Bachelor and all that, but I've just never gotten into watching it. And so I was like, all right, I guess we're gonna watch this one. And, and it got my attention. I'm like, all right, let's watch this show. <laughs> and it's just so sad though, because every woman that he doesn't pick, they go in a car and they show the camera in the car and the drive and they're asking the woman how you feel. They all say the same thing. I just wanna be chosen. It felt so good. <laughs> to feel chosen, I, I, just, I just wanna be enough and I just don't wanna be lonely. And it's sad because I think this is the reality of what so many of us have come to believe that we're not enough, that we're not complete, that we need this person to fulfill this or this job to fulfill this. And people have asked me, is it hard to not compromise? And my question is, it is when you don't already feel chosen. But I know I'm chosen. And it's not just by God, because that is a big part of it, but I'm chosen by people. And this is where we had the disconnect intimacy with sex. Because it was even in the show, The Bachelor, he asked him, the host asked him this, so it was so interesting. He was like, so, uh, on the, the last night they go and you know, they get to go in a, potentially go in a room with them. And it's all about like if they're gonna have sex with them. And the host asked him like, well, like what's intimacy to you? And they both laugh and they both say, well, sex. And this is what culture, when we are dominated by culture's values, we will believe things like I'm only gonna have this fulfillment of intimacy if I could get in a relationship that could be sexual. But to be very clear, intimacy is not just sex because we have a Jesus who was very fulfilled and very satisfied and he was single. And you do not have to have that. Intimacy is about this, this deepness of relationship. This is why if you're not in a microchurch and you're lacking connection and relationships, get in a microchurch. 
Get in those relationships, those connections. The reason why I say I'm not just chosen by God, which I know I am, but I'm chosen by God's people. I'm chosen by people who know every single part of me. I have a group of friends that, I mean, they, they could tell you the ins and outs of my life. They know the good, the bad, the ugly, and I know me, and they know me, and somehow they still choose to be my friends. And that is when I'm able to be like, no, I, I'm content, not because I, 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 ha- I have this intimacy. I have this connection to where I'm able to say, no, I, because our deepest desire in our core is we want to be fully known and we want to be fully loved. And the question is, have you even let someone fully know you? Have you let someone fully love you? Nobody can love your soul the way Jesus can. Nobody can love you the way he can. And I don't think our problem is, is 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 that he can't do it. I think our problem is we haven't been honest enough with him to do it. We haven't sat down with him to have this connection and this relationship with him. We long to be known and nobody will ever know us better than God. Because the reality is, is we're truly found in God. We are created in his image. And when you come to know him, you actually come to know yourself more than you ever did before. And this is the problem that we have because in the beginning, even Eve, she was distracted. She believed into the lies that that she needs more, that God, surely God was holding back from her in the garden. And so she chose, if God's holding back from me, then I'm gonna take this into my own hands. And the enemy wanted to do nothing more for this to happen because he wanted to cut off intimacy. That is what happened. When there was this, this disconnection, when sin came in the world, what happened was it cut off intimacy from us with the God who made us. The connection that we get to have with God. And this is why Jesus coming back is Jesus' ultimate goal is I want to connect them again. I want to bring back an intimacy where we could actually have that right relationship with him. The application that I'm hoping that we would do is detect distractions and dethrone them. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you. See, some of you, You need to detect what that distraction is. Some of you, this is the distraction. Some of you, there needs to be time limits that are set on your phone. Some of you, you need to turn off every notification that you have. Some of you need to put this phone away in another room so that you you can refocus, not just your relationship with God, but with God's people, right? Maybe some of you, money has been a distraction. Maybe you need to go to that microchurch that they were even just talking about. Maybe you need to rethink your relationship with certain people. Or are there people in your life who are taking you further from God and not closer? When you're dominated by the culture's values, you're gonna live in anxiety. But when you're devoted to kingdom values, you'll always live in abundance. And the reason why we could be devoted to the kingdom is because we had a king who was first devoted to us. You have a king that was willing to say, you know what? We could dethrone the things that are in our heart. We could dethrone the things that distract us because you have a king who was willing to get off of his throne because he was so attracted to you, because he was so moved by you. And he decided, Jesus decided to come here and live on this earth, live the life that we should have lived, die the death we should have died so that he could get to us, so that we could get to him, so that we could have a relationship again with him. His focus was on us. In Hebrews 12, it even talks about, since we are 
surrounded by a great cloud of witness. Let us throw off all the sin that so easily entangles us and let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And I love this verse because it doesn't just talk about us fixing our eyes on Jesus, but it talks about how he first fixed his eyes on us because it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What could be joyous about going on a cross? You. You were his focus. The purpose of going on the cross was you. How can I get my people back to me? Some will choose me, and he knew some won't. But he was worth it. And so it says in verse three, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And my prayers for those in here who have lost heart who've lost their focus or their attention has gone away from the Lord and I'm hoping that he will fulfill and satisfy all of your needs because he promises he will do it and he can do it. 